All right, so let's get going. Now, if you have the right outline, we'll go ahead and start, Jordan. If you have the right outline, it should say the Kingdom of God series, chapter seven, seven in inevitable institutions of God's government or of government, it just says. 7A, the three-legged foundational stool of God's kingdom restoration plan. And chapter 7A, leg number one, or no, I'm sorry, bad reading. Leg number three, restoring the church. And then it should say, changing the world via the plan of Jesus. This idea of the seven institutions of, of God's kingdom, every society in the history of the world has had these seven institutions. They're created by God. They're ordained by God. They're inevitable. There's no society that doesn't have these. So just to catch us up, please turn over on the back of your outline to the very last thing, which is the Kingdom of God series, 15 chapter titles. We have gone through chapters 1, 2, and chapter 3, A, B, C, D, but we uh, stopped at E just uh, for some logistical reasons. I needed to, to teach some stuff that was easier for me to study out, which this is a seven inevitable institutions. I've been teaching this kind of stuff since the 70s, so it required a lot of less study in preparation time, and I had a... So we're, we kind of jumped ahead to chapter 7, so I'm just... I'm sorry that I'm making it hard for whoever's following. I, I know there's some guys who listen on the podcast. Uh, so again, chapter 1, 2, and, and several parts of chapter 3 are on the podcast already. Then we skip to chapter 7, and this is probably about the fourth week on chapter 7. Now, if that doesn't confuse you enough, I'm dividing chapter 7 into 7A, 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 7B, 1, 2, 3, and 4. I'm trying to do each chapter in a maximum of eight weeks or so on the average. Uh, we got through chapters 1, 2, and 2 in about three sessions, I think. So that gets me a little bit ahead. I'm trying to average about seven to eight chapters so that the, the, the series will end up only taking two years and about 104, 105 messages. So that's kind of what we're going for. Now, back flipping back over on Roman numeral three, cha chapter seven is, a, is the whole chapter is about the seven inevitable institutions of government. And they are the individual, which begins with self-government, Self-government, according to the Bible, begins with being drawn into by the effectual working of the gospel into the kingdom of God by, the, by being reborn and converted into Christ. The Bible says that before that, you were held captive by Satan to do his will. Unbelievers, because of a concept called general revelation and, and a concept called common grace, because they're made in the image of God, and while sin twists the motivations, attitudes, and so forth of everything, uh, as an unbeliever, we're still able to have certain kinds of self-government, uh, such as, you know, getting up for work on time without our mom or dad having to wake us up or something like that. But uh, we're not able to do it for, for the proper reasons or proper motivations, because unless you do it out of uh, intimacy of love for Christ and obedience to Christ and following him, uh, having received his love, we love because he first loved us. When, when we receive Christ, when we receive the gospel, we begin to under, understand God's great love that he demonstrated for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, that he died for us. And as we receive that and so forth and begin to love him back, we're able to begin to exercise self-government as we uh, are con fully converted and then begin to be sanctified or matured in Christ. 
the second government we dealt with last week is uh, family government and uh, both nuclear and extended. Remember, every, every one of these governments was affected by the fall of man, and every one of them came under the dominion of our three um, enemies, three insurmountable enemies that can only be surmounted by being rescued by grace, by, by Christ. And those include our sin nature, the world system, and Satan and his kingdom. All of these came under those three inevitable institutions. Uh, or those three enemies of our faith that are insurmountable and so forth. And, and the goal of Christianity is to progressively redeem these in the order I've listed them in. And as we made a, a point of this is fallen man always wants to reverse the order. Fallen man's solution is government and media and capturing the educational systems and so forth. So... The third one is religious institutions, fourth, educational systems. We also looked at that because I did both messages last week when John was on vacation. And um, we looked at recapturing educational institutions for Christ in the second meeting. Uh, economic organizations and systems, media and social government and civil government. So, again, uh, what we're trying to do is, is look at each of these. We spent a week, actually two, two messages on individual or self-government beginning with the gospel and with discipleship and maturation in Christ and so forth. We spent one week on re redeeming the family. Uh, the family is, has become a progressively broken institution in our society. We looked at uh, the fact that the sexual revolution of the 60s gave way to the 1971 liberalizing of divorce laws. And now we have a culture of divorce. We actually have a culture that some people call serial marriages, where many people... Uh, act like in, uh, 50 years ago, uh, it was very common when you were in sixth or seventh or eighth grade to um, be go steady with a girl for two or three or four, four weeks or might sometimes two or three or four months, and then you went steady with another girl and so forth. Many people are trapped in kind of that level of maturity toward the way they're approaching the, the institution of marriage. And uh, so we looked at all that. We looked how to work pre preventively. Uh, we want to we work want to work redemptively, but but God will send us people who are already divorced and who have been hurt by then in that experience, and God wants to redeem them and put their life back together. We looked at uh, people who are in the midst that are married, but their marriage has significant troubles or problems or whatever, and needs uh, needs ministry help to to become healthy. And then we looked at probably the best way of keeping the marriage bed undefiled and honoring the institution of marriage, Hebrews 13, 4, is to disciple people into as high levels of maturity as you can before they ever start courting in the first place. Uh, if you can have a, a great number of things uh, worked out in your life before courting, uh, your, your road to maturity and to a good marriage and so forth is that much easier. Now, that being said, Nobody goes into marriage perfectly ready or there's there's all kinds of surprises after you're married. And that's part of why it's a covenant. You uh, covenant together that you're going to work on it <laughs> and that you're going to, you know, continue to progress in Christ together. So that being said, let's get into flip over your page to number C under Roman numeral four. And that's what we're uh, the third aspect of what we're calling the three legged stool. We cannot invade educational systems, media, economic systems, 
which I listed out of order there, but educational seating systems and vocational systems. We, you know, in this church, we have a lot of emphasis on helping young men, uh, you know, a kind of an epidemic in our, in our society right now is that uh, we are socializing young men in such a way that many are saying there's articles that would, uh, that, that basically are claiming that young men are reaching certain kinds of cognitive and reasonable uh, ways of, of, of re- relating to reality and so forth that used to be developed by ages 15 to 25 are now uh, generally being developed by around age 35. And some of that centers around just a uh, more biblical view toward education and vocation. Almost all churches minister to the spiritual parts of life, but all seven of these are the spiritual parts of life. Christ actually wants to uh, help you bring the kingdom of Christ into your life and through our lives together into all seven of these. And they begin with the three-legged stool of, of, the, of the self-government of the Christian man or woman, the family, and today we're going to look at the church. I would be hard-pressed to say which of these is more important. The church is one of the three tools of God's grace. God's grace will grow you through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the church. As they function together uh, in your life, that's how they grow you. You, that's how you are enabled and empowered to grow in Christ-likeness. If you are missing any of those elements, much of the church today uh, is missing the power of the Holy Spirit and things like casting out demons and, and spiritual gifts and, and so forth are just not even that normal. But they in the Gospels, they're normal. In the book of Acts, they're normal. Uh, and, and Jesus was, was ministering in a culture much more godly than ours. Uh, other sections of the church have that, you know, have great worship and a spiritual anointing for prayer and some spiritual gifts and some deliverance and healing and things like that with almost no solid basis in biblical studies and comprehensive study of the Bible, systematic theology, uh, church history, uh, historical theology, and, and, and all the things that are needed for the church to be well-directed and for individuals to be well-directed. Frankly, you need to know the word. Uh, much more thoroughly than what's the norm in our in our churches today. And of course, lastly, is the tool of grace of the church. And the church, interestingly, is uh, like like the word and the spirit. The church is both one of the governments of institution and one of the seven institutions. The word and the spirit work through the church as an institution to lead people to Christ, to disciple, to mature, uh, etc. So the church is both uh, one of the seven institutions, but it's one of the three agents through which God brings his kingdom. So it's really kind of this swivel position where uh, the church is one of the tools of grace, but it's also one of, that is the agents of God bringing his kingdom. He brings his kingdom by grace through the tools of the word, the spirit, and the church working in an inextricably intertwined manner. And it's also one of the institutions that he wants to, to recapture and restore. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Believe me, uh, one of the most significant things I went through as a Christian myself was after God had raised me up to a position of leadership in the, in the, the early 80s and so forth. Um, you know, I, I, I frankly had to go through some dealings 
for God to establish well that it's not my church, doesn't belong to the elders, doesn't belong to the people in the pews. It belongs to Christ. It's his church. And uh, that's something we have to handle very, very uh, brokenly and humbly and so forth. Uh, He owns the church. And it doesn't matter how much you sacrifice for the church. It's still his church, not the guys who sacrificed for this team or that team or or the other thing. It belongs to Christ. And so uh, he is building his church. He's since the day of Pentecost, well, really starting when he started calling the disciples and proclaiming repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and building his community. He said, uh, when he said, I will build my church, he's using the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out assembly. My voice cracked there a little bit. I think I'm still going through puberty at the age of 57. Uh, <laughs> um, he, uh, he said, I will build my church. And the word ekklesia is the same word that the Septuagint version, the Greek translation that grew up after Alexander the Great in, in the third uh, century uh, BC. The, the, jer- the Gre- Greek translation uses that word. Boy, I, I'm stumbling over my words here. I'm gonna slow down a little bit. I'm kind of excited. Um, the, the Septuagint uses the word ekklesia. And what Jesus is saying, every Hebrew uh, person in the audience, which was all the disciples, who had been brought up memorizing Torah until the age of 12. Every Jewish young man memorized the first five books of the Bible, especially in the northern part of Israel, where uh, it was actually interesting that the southern part, Judea, had more religion to it, but the northern part had kind of more uh, relationship with God, a more, a less uh, legalistic faith, a more real faith, and and, uh, it would in the in the Sunday schools, or they didn't have Sunday school, of course, but you know, in the synagogues and so forth, you would you would uh, actually grow up memorizing the Torah, and to be invited to follow the the bigger and, and better and more famous rabbis, you needed to have the whole Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what should be called the Jewish scriptures. You needed to have either significant portions or all of that memorized to be like Paul when he was. Uh, asked to follow Gamaliel, when Gamaliel invited him to be discipled, it was because Paul would have had the entire Jewish scriptures memorized. And the, the guys that John the Baptist called, that Jesus later called, would have been young men who grew up in Galilee. They would have grown up in towns like Capernaum mostly, near Nazareth. They probably knew Jesus on a casual level through the car- caravans that went to the feast and so forth. And they knew John the Baptist. And uh, several of the disciples, especially the most famous four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were disciples of John the Baptist first. Uh, When Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men, that was not their first time they met Jesus or their first encounter. He had built a relationship with them, and he was ready to give the invitation, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And actually, these were guys who'd been passed over by by the more famous rabbis. interestingly. And from that point, Jesus begins to build his kingdom uh, by building a community of believers. We will look at the church more fully in chapter, I think it's 14. No, well, that's it. We will look at it in chapter 14. Um, I think mostly we're going to look at it in chapter 14. So we're going to look at it a little bit more in chapter 8 as well. Um, but Jesus uh, said, I'll build my church and that church is kind of a pivotal pivotal organization 
to bring both the grace, and that is the agents of the kingdom, and to recapture all seven institutions for the kingdom. It's from the church that the church speaks uh, the word of God and strategizes to infiltrate salt and, and uh, give light to the other seven institutions. That's what we are supposed, that's what he means when he says, you're the salt of the earth. We are to actually, uh, through, uh, through the three-legged stool of, of taking self-government further and better, uh, we are supposed to, uh, to invade from that three-legged stool the other four institutions and recapture them for Christ. That's been the, the commission that Adam had to be fruitful, multiply, take dominion of the earth. That commission was repeated to Noah, to Abraham, to David. We'll see that as we go through our survey of the Old Testament in chapter 4, 5. And, uh, and, and finally, it was uh, uh, Christ gave it to his disciples when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's essentially the same as be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Now, uh, so as we look at the church, let's get into point C on the back of your outline here for the remaining uh, 25 minutes that we have. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the theme verse of this whole Bible study. God would not have us pray for something he would not have us work for. This modern idea that the, the earth is the devil's and it's going to be darker and darker and the church is going to be hiding in a corner and will there be a remnant left and, and all this stuff is not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is do business until I come, infiltrate, occupy, set, set the captives free, proclaim the kingdom, that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, the kingdom's in our midst, and make disciples of the king, liberate, liberate every area of human endeavor under Christ. So when you say the light of the world in the lampstand, hopefully by now you understand Revelation 120 says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A lampstand is a church. It's a place where you put lots of lights in the Bible. So the Bible talks about lampstands a lot. It was part of, part of the tabernacle was lampstands and so forth. And lampstands are a place where lights are working together as one in community. And so he, that goes along with him saying, you're a city. Cities uh, are not one person. This, you know, there's not the city of the individual self and uh, population one. Cities are, are where people dwell together in a type of culture, in a type of government, in a type of way of life, uh, in engaging in commerce together, trading uh, you know, somebody grows eggs and someone else makes shirts. And, and uh, cities are uh, places where uh, all of culture resides. And uh, the church is supposed to be a city within the city. We are supposed to have a, a different king, a different spirit. We follow different values that are given to us. In, in we are the people of the book. They are the people of man's reason or man's view. Uh, uh, they think they can reason objectively, 
but clearly uh, clearly fallen man's reason itself is is clouded while he retains the image of God and not everything he reasons is evil wicked or terrible uh, all fallen men are seek to suppress the knowledge of God that's what Romans 1 teaches us they there's none who understands there's none who seeks for God together they've turned aside and we are to liberate them from that government of self uh, and sin and so forth so with that in mind let's look at seven statements I'll get, get, give you two or three minutes on each of these about the church first of all this in other words in order it's one of the things that's happened uh, for a number of reasons progressively different times in the centuries and church history and so forth but uh, various models of how to do the church how to be the church we are the church Christ in us is the is the church various uh, humanistic ideas of how to do church have grown and that's really one of the things you study in church history but what, what one of the reasons you're supposed to thoroughly study scripture almost all of evangelicalism will apply the scripture to sort of a uh, honed down reductionist view of the gospel but hardly anybody applies it to these other seven things and very few people are really taking seriously what is the church from a biblical point of view and what God wants to do is restore the church to being biblical. There are lots of churches, and where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. There are lots of churches that have the presence of God that overall don't have much of a biblical vision of the church. And that will inevitably cause churches to crash, to become less effective, to miss the point on, on certain things, and so forth. And what we're always crying out to God for is help us be your church. We don't want to miss the point, and without your grace constantly recorrecting us and redirecting us, without constant seeking God and studying and so forth, we, 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 there's no way we can zero in on the target. We'll miss the target altogether without continuing to seek God for his grace and his word and so forth. And even the word sin, hamartia, means to miss the target. And, of course, no one, many are called but few are chosen, and that has to do as a verse to Christians, no one hits the target completely in their life. Uh, progressively, we're sanctified. Progressively, we're called into devotion to God and so forth. But what we want to do individually and corporately together is zero in the, on the target of Christ himself, uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and what God's eternal decree is, as we studied in chapter 3, what his covenant is, what he's trying to do in terms of having a people for his own possession, his special treasure in the earth, a people under his heart and kingdom. We want to zero in on that. Now, here are seven, in, seven things that we need to rethink, therefore. First of all, all churches in the New Testament and all cities, which was a foreshadowing of the church, and the synagogue, which grew up in the inner church period, also was a foreshadowing of the church, even though it's not in the scriptures, but it is in the scriptures in the New Testament. That's why Paul and, the, and all the apostles, whenever they went to a new city, they went to the synagogue first. Because the, the synagogue was actually a model upon which many things of the church were based. But also, the cities of Israel, uh, God never intended a united central civil government. It, uh, eventually, Israel uh, opted for a king like the other nations. But God wanted to be their, their king. And they were supposed to be a federation of cities that, that were run by a plurality of elders, and the elders uh, were, the, were the keepers of the city gates and so forth. 
And all of that is a foreshadowing of, the, of, of what the elders are supposed to be in the church of the New Testament. In fact, that was what the New Testament office of elder was based on. So, um, what God always did is have plural leadership. There was never uh, this strong senior pastor model where there was never a guy who just ran a city apart from the other elders. And uh, the people of the city had some say in things. If you look in Acts 6, when, there was, when, the, when, when one of the first crises in the church emerges, uh, when they're neglecting the, the Hellenistic uh, widows in favor of the Jewish-born widows, the disciples say, choose from among you seven men who, fought, who meet these qualifications. And the, he actually asked the church to do that. So, the, frankly, the church has a, little, has a role in, in the government of the church. And then the apostles, uh, you know, further screened those and laid hands on them and anointed them and sent them to do the task. And that really is how the office of deaconship was born in the New Testament. Uh, so leadership in the New Testament is always plural. It's always servant leadership. One of the best chapters in, our, in the book we highly recommend called When the Church Was a Family is toward the end of the book when he talks about safeguards for, for having that kind of, to, to have a true community of Christians where, the, where you can actually have verses like in Timothy where it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honored. Wow, that's pretty intense. Uh, in the church today, most people rule themselves. Most, most people don't, uh, aren't really submitted to the eldership uh, and so forth. And it says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders. Uh, who keep watch over your soul? That that's intense stuff. Now, in uh, when when the church in Acts 15, the first church council met to, to decide issues that were that where they were challenging the the Gentile believers that they had to come under the law and be circumcised and so forth. It says they sent the following decrees with Paul, Silas, Barnabas, and so forth. And that Greek word is dogmatos, which means dogmatic. In other words, these are absolute word of God truths we're sending by the, these apostolic uh, uh, delegates. So uh, the safeguard, God, God is not, the church is not supposed to be a democracy. It's not to be supposed to be like the rest of the culture, everyone for themselves, first and foremost. We're actually supposed to take up our Christ, cross, deny ourselves. Uh, we the things that the other people in the church are more important than than I am. Hopefully, you have that perspective toward the church. It's not about my uh, marriage or my vocation or my ambitions or or selling my books or something. It's it's about you, and and for you, it's about the person next to you, and it's it's about each other. And the way to safeguard. Um, Having a, having a city kind of leadership that's based on the Old Testament and the New Testament, as uh, Joseph Hellerman brings out quite well in that chapter, is that first and foremost, uh, the leaders are to be servants. It's a kind of a, I think it's a thing of God's sovereignty that Rick Widener is with us today, uh, because uh, really, we joined the Alliance for Renewal Churches. We looked, we looked at several other uh, church movements, and they had the most genuine, humble servant leadership. 
and especially in the three main guys, Ray Nethery, um, Rick Reidner, and Ned Berube, the president of the Alliance Renewal Churches. The servant leadership I saw in them and the humility and so forth, I said, you know what? I want to be like that when I grow up. That's a big part of like following leadership is to say, is to choose leaders that you say, you know what? In many ways, I'd like to be more like Ned Berube or Rick Widener or, or Ray Nethery. And, you know, one of the things that is uh, a story that I've probably told before, but I've certainly told it to Rick, is Rick and I were having a conversation one time and some things he said uh, I misunderstood and they offended me and so forth. And I kind of just left it there for a little while. And then uh, we were talking uh, at one of the conferences and I said, Rick, I've got these things that I need to work through with you. And I expected he would say, well, let's talk on the phone next week because he lives, you know, three and a half to four hours away. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said, great, I'll come down and, and meet with you. And he drove down here just to talk it through. And I thought, wow, that's the kind of people I want to be involved with. And uh, um, leadership needs to be plural. It needs to be servant leadership. And there needs to be multiple tools of accountability. I want to give you... Uh, five, four quick levels of multiple t tiers of accountability. Did I say multiple tools of accountability? Multiple tiers of accountability or multiple um, uh, whatever. First, we're under Christ. It's his church. And he rules it by his word, by his spirit, and by his church. We are not autonomous. And we are salvation there's this there's actually this really oh I, I shouldn't say stupid but i want to there's this debate in theology today about the lordship salvation debate and um it's what it, it's amazing it's kind of it's nonsense because what he's saving you for from is being your own lord that was the essence of the fall you will be as god yourself determining for yourself is what the hebrew means good from evil. Your, your thoughts, your ways, your values, your uh, thinking about it is what he wants to save you from. So the first level of accountability is everyone in the church is a priest uh, that, and is called to know the Lord and be under the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, uh, the three tools of grace, as we've mentioned before, the word, the spirit, and church. You, you are under all three of those tools of grace. It is incumbent upon you as a Christian, you should know the, the, thoroughly the word of God. You should also have a relationship with where you know, you know the Holy Spirit in such a way that you know the difference between your thoughts or demonic thoughts and thoughts that bear witness to the spirit of God. Now, of course, we're all fallen and we're all growing in that. That's why we need the other tools. But you, but that's, that's a thing that God wants for every Christian, to know the voice of the Lord. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And he actually defined salvation in John 5 as the, uh, the time will come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And he's talking about spiritually dead. And those who hear will live. One of the things, you know, we do all these Bible studies individually and so forth. But the bottom line is, like in coaching, you can't leave what God left out. Uh, the reason we try to say, stay gospel-centered, because until the person starts to experience the presence of God and, the, and hear the voice of God and worship, and when they're reading their Bible and begins to understand that their values and their way, 
their priorities and their ways are, are, are deception and God's ways are light and truth. You really can't help someone grow. You can't disciple a person who Christ hasn't converted. So uh, the next uh, level of accountability is probably the family, but I lost my place in my notes. Um, the family. You know, um, there's a kind of, uh, the, there's a word submission, which is hupo. It's not hupokuo, hupos, but it means to hear under. And uh, when it says in Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents in the Lord, honoring your father and mother is not always doing what you're told. And honestly, even in the church, it's not always doing what your shepherd tells you or your pastor or what the elders tell you. Sometimes there's a, little, you, there's a room for a little pushback. You know, it becomes highly problematic when a person is always rejecting the counsel. But, you know, many a person has said, well, I, you know, I hear what you're saying and so forth, but I don't feel like the Lord's calling me there. And if that's occasional over the years, that's, that's actually good. It's healthy. But if, uh, if that's regular, if you basically say, you know, I put up this stop sign and this caution sign and this stop sign and the other caution sign and the person sped through them every time, that represents some deep-seated rebellions against God and immaturities that are problematic and need to be, and God needs to set the person free from that. Uh, and and in, the, uh, in the idea of submission, sometimes there's this idea of husbands and wives, that the wife's supposed to be submitted to the husband. But, in, but Ephesians 5.22 comes right after Ephesians 5.21. And Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Sorry for all you husbands, but I, uh, God wants you to be submitted to your wife on a certain kind of level. Uh, if you notice all through the Old Testament, uh, there are guys whose wife spoke to them out of sin in the flesh who listened to their wife, and God judged them for that. And there are other guys who God spoke to them from the Spirit of God, wisdom and caution and so forth, like Abigail with her husband, wicked husband. And the guy didn't listen to the wife, and God judged them for that. So husbands, you have the obligation and the responsibility when, when your wife speaks to hear if God is saying something to you in that. And if it, if it is the word of the Lord, you're accountable to it. And you're not uh, some lone ranger running roughshod over your family. That truly, when you're raising kids, the husband and wife are like a plurality of elders. And the husband is the presiding elder. So... That's, you know, what this idea of, uh, and then service gifts, God, it's Christ who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I, I'm, I'm so behind schedule that I'm not going to develop that much here. We'll look at the church more in future chapters of this. But um, does everyone get that? Um, that God, Christ is the one who gives those gifts. And Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 23, uh, when he's pronouncing judgment over Jerusalem and so forth, he says, you will not see me in, again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are several things like uh, whoever handles mammon uh, righteously, will God will open their eyes to the true riches. There are several things that will determine whether you're actually, you can actually have a certain level of, of 
wisdom from God and perception and flow of the Holy Spirit. And you can begin to lose that without even uh, realizing it. And some of that gets down to how well you handle vocation and finances and stewardship of that. But one of the great things that, that determines that is, is you cannot perceive Jesus until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God will send messengers to you, and your response to them is going to determine how much you really perceive Jesus and flow in the Spirit and, and, and avoid religion and unreality. Well, that's point one. I got uh, about seven or eight minutes to do point two through seven. Biblically called and qualified leadership. Many are called, but few are chosen. And I wish we could give a, I have a whole teaching on like five C's of leadership called. And, but one of them is this, this character before charisma. Many a called man who's very anointed and so forth, raises himself up, starts a church. That's very rampant in our day. And can even, because of his calling, the gifts in God of God are irrevocable, can even get a, a following and a group of people around them and so forth. But if you're not under the proper tiers of leadership, which should include your family, it should include the plurality of elders and leaders within the local congregation, and it should include a translocal association of churches that, that uh, you're under. If you're not doing that multiple tiered accountable leadership, you will crash eventually. You'll make unwise decisions. Uh, and, and the people you disciple will become load rangers. And either they won't take the word of God seriously or they won't take leadership in the church seriously or whatever. But uh, they will become what you are. And if you, if you are not a team player, none of the people you lead to Christ and disciple will become team players. And they won't learn to, to uh, handle relationships uh, you know, relationships are difficult. They involve iron sharpening iron, so one man sharpens another. They involve not quitting on people. They involve uh, getting it right after you've tried 22 times to get it right. Well, perhaps call in some others to help you to, to, and try a 23rd or 4th time to get it right. But uh, calling is one thing. I wish I had time to develop. Uh, look at, you know, I've listed the scriptures for you there that are, that are foundational. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16, and Titus 1, 1 through 9. And even though those are the qualifications of elders, and then in the case of Timothy, deacons, they are really the, also the qualifications of just being a good husband and a good brother in the church. Everyone should shoot should be asking God by his grace to change their inner being and nature and attitudes and motivation and character uh, to be more Christ-like in all those ways. Study that list often and ask yourself, how many of those characteristics would be a good description of me? The reason it says that it has to be a husband of one wife in a, in a, if a man can't manage his household well, which has to do with the economics of it and keeping the devil out and the, and the Holy Spirit in, uh, you know, it's amazing uh, when you go to certain people's houses. I, I really love the marriages so far in our church. We don't have that many, but uh, almost every house I've been in, you can sense the Holy Spirit's presence when you walk in the house. And... Um, the reason that has to be is because the church is a family of families. Now, God, we have more singles than families in our church, and God puts the solitary in families through the church. Uh, that's why we love single brother households and so forth. But 
uh, by and large, um, the you know the the healthiest thing about leadership is they have to be good husbands and wives that that love each other and have a good marriage and, and raise their kids well. That's who's qualified to be a good leader in the church. Community. Um, Got to wrap up here. I just want to say mutual service. We are a pretty good. We do pretty well at serving uh, each other in the in the church, helping people move, helping whatever. And uh, um, you know, uh, most people today are growing up in very broken families. I hardly know anyone who I could say, boy, their their family was really healthy. Um, I know a few, but uh, not that many. And uh, the church and community is the first way that you begin to uh, be put back together the way you should have been raised in your family. And it's not, don't think that it's something that can happen in a few months. It's something that happens in over a few years. Um, peer relationships, I just want to mention that. We do a lot of good fellowship. A peer relationship, you know, you should have among the elders, and at this point, we're trying, we're working with other guys to be shepherds and so forth. And people are there's several guys that are maturing in that way. But among uh, the elders, you should have one that's your primary pastoral caregiver and so forth. But and uh, that should be agreed upon in a mutually a defined relationship. But you have many peer brothers, and what's great about a peer brother or sister is this: it's usually a person that, if you really evaluate things, they're more than mature than you in certain areas, and you're more mature than them in certain areas. And emulating each other's areas, uh, uh, you know, of of character and even gifts. Like you can be mentored, you know, a brother in the church could teach you to play the guitar or, or what have you. You can, uh, peer relationships are one of the greatest ways that Christ's government can grow in your life. If you say, wow, you know, this brother that I'm friends with, we go to Starbucks and study and everything like that. And I would really like to be more like him in the ways God's gifted him here. Liturgy, um, boy, I'm down to three minutes. Liturgy is uh, means the work of the people, and there's we, we don't do, uh, we, you know. First of all, restoring the Lord's Day. The average American Christian thinks, "What? Who cares if the church meets on Wednesday?" Nonsense. The church met on the first day of the week because Christ work rose on the first day of the week. And the first day of the week is the beginning of the new creation of the heavens and the earth. The kingdom is among us and expanding. And we, uh, the reason Jason ends us with a benediction is because he's basically saying, uh, hear the word that was spoken today, become the word that was spoken today, and go out in Jesus' name and take it to conquer and to serve and to bless and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And now you are the true sons of Abraham. Go out and bless the people around you. That's, uh, you know, why the Lord's Day is important. Liturgy, um, the reason we do creeds and the reason we do the Lord's Supper and the reason it's more than the Lord's Supper, it's communion, it's Eucharist, it's, it's, a, it's a covenant meal is because the early church did that. And that's if you read the New Testament more than in a shallow way, creeds were recited in the New Testament. And we've been over that before, so you, if you don't know the references, 1 Corinthians 15 and so forth, but I, I could give you several. But sacraments, 
uh, the church calendar and so forth. I wish I could, uh, all of these being restored is, is, is vital if the church is going to actually, people say, well, I want to lead people to Christ and I want to evangelize and so forth. The church does all that through these things. And, uh, you know, you have to be more catechized if you're going to go out and share the gospel effectively. Personal pastoral care, which has to do with soul health, discipleship, which has to do with mentoring, tutoring, uh, equipping and training people to go out and do the work of ministry. All of that has to be restored. Mission. You know, most churches kind of contain their life within their walls. I'm, I'm really proud of our church because, frankly, we have a lot of people who are young in the Lord or growing in the Lord or just getting well-founded and, and uh, they've come out of broken lives and they're getting healthier and so forth, but we're still doing the mission. Jesus didn't wait till the disciples were mature to send them. And if you really understand the question they asked in Acts 1, 6, and 7, you kind of begin to say, how could he have sent them out in Luke 9 and 10 and Matthew 10? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the truth is God sends you when you're not ready. And, and Jesus always used real-life circumstances as teachable moments. Lastly, we have got to grow in becoming a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know what? Our worship should be life-changing. And we go through different seasons. Right now, we have a, a, an unusual number of people who are just getting started in the Lord, and that, uh, there is kind of a power of corporate anointing and so forth. Uh, really, I would really encourage you, you know, we beg and beg this, Try to get to a place where Saturday nights and Sunday mornings are about how uh, filled with God's spirit, how studied in his word, how postured toward the kingdom, uh, how, how well your sins have been confessed, how much you're ready to come in filled with the spirit to worship the Lord together. Um, because, you know, um, I'll take you back to, a, to a, an experience I had and we'll end here. I once had a, a young lady, she was a junior high student whose parents were um, divorced and, they, and it was, they were encouraging her to be a lesbian and they felt that was her true identity and she was already smoking a lot of pot and different things and she was in seventh or eighth grade. And she came uh, to worship among us. Uh, this, is, this is, you people know who I'm talking about. This was another long time ago. And uh, in her second time with us, the worship was so powerful that she came back and at the back of the church and told me and a couple other people were standing there. She said, I don't know what this God is all about and so forth, but I know the real God is who, is who I experienced in the worship. I want to know more. Uh, I want to know that God and I want to know what you guys are all about. And that should be a very common experience. Amen.